Hey guys, welcome back to Real Time Crime. I'm Hannah. And I'm Jedi. And welcome to our category for the month of May. We will be kicking off this month with our category of cold cases. And to start off for today, we will be discussing the Hall Mills murders of 1922. So take it away, Hannah. So as Jedi said, this case takes place in 1922, September of 1922 to be exact, in Somerset County, New Jersey, which is about an hour west, kind of southwest of New York City. So it begins on the morning of September 16th, 1922, when two people, 23-year-old Raymond Schneider and his 15-year-old girlfriend, Pearl Bomber, were walking down like this little dirt road. Um, that was kind of known as lover's lane. So they're walking down this lover's lane and they come across two bodies, a man and a woman, and they're lying side by side, kind of underneath the tree. And they can just tell by first glance, these people are dead. So they run to the first house that they can find and they call the police. So within like two minutes, officers arrive. Um, and within a few minutes, two officers arrive. And they are very easily able to identify who these people are because lying on the man's shoe, like propped up against his shoe on the ground, is his business card that reads Reverend Edward Wheeler Hall. So our local pastor. However, the woman lying next to him is not, in fact, his wife, but a member of the congregation and a well-known member of the church's choir named Eleanor Reinhardt Mills, who also happens to be married to another person named James, who is the church's janitor. So we got a little drama. So as the police begin inspecting the scene, they see that, um, so Edward had like a hat on top of his face. And when they remove the hat, they see that he's been shot once in the head. Um, it's like right above the ear and went out through the back of the neck. He was shot on the right side. And the woman, Eleanor, she was shot three times. Once she was shot in the head three times, once under her right eye, once over the right temple and once over the right ear. And it was apparent that the bodies had been kind of placed there after they had been shot. So they were placed lying side by side with their feet pointed at a crabapple tree. So their feet were like going underneath the tree towards the trunk. The woman was wearing a scarf around her neck and the police could see that it looked like her there was damage to her neck. So when they removed the scarf, it was clear that her throat had been slit. And people said that it, it was so deep you could see her bone, like her neck bone. That's like almost a decapitation. Almost, right? Like, they probably only had to crack her her neck bone, and, and that would have been it. Yeah, it was very deep. But then, um, just to jump ahead real quick, an autopsy was performed a few years later, and it was revealed that it wasn't necessarily that the cut was so deep, but that her larynx had been ripped out, as well as her tongue. 
And for those of you who don't know, the larynx holds like your, it's like your voice box. It holds your vocal cords and your jugular. And she was a part of the choir. So maybe there's something there. And within the wound too, at the time when the, when the police officers had removed the scarf, they saw that there were maggots already forming in the wound, which suggested to them that the bodies had been there for at least 24 hours. So right off the bat, there's jurisdictional issues. The bodies were genuinely found like right on the border between two counties, between Somerset and Middlesex, but they were in Somerset at the end of the day. So during all this confusion though, locals, because nothing happens in this town and we're in the middle of prohibition too. So oh, there's a, there's a murder, there's a crime scene. People immediately flock to the scene and are curious. And they compromise the scene. They are walking through it. They're taking souvenirs. They're passing around his business card. And not that there's any like DNA evidence that could be collected or anything, but at the end of the day, the physical evidence was compromised. So Eleanor Mills was the woman who was murdered. She was 34 at the time. Like I said, she was married to the church janitor, James. Um, she was wearing a blue dress with red polka dots. And um, she was wearing like black stockings, brown shoes. There was a blue velvet hat nearby and the brown silk scarf that had been covering the cut. She had a bruise on her arm and like a tiny cut on her lip. But nothing, nothing major that would suggest, at least to me, that she like fought back or anything. Not- I don't know that she had time to fight back, but it doesn't look like there was much of a struggle. And with the reverend, he was wearing, uh, his pair of glasses were still on his face. He had a small bruise on the tip of his ear. And um, they said there were abrasions on two of his fingers, but that's just like small scratches or cuts, nothing crazy. And there was a wound on the calf of his right leg. But again, none of these really suggest to me he was like fighting, like either of them were fighting. They just kind of seem like they could have been, you know, like wounds that they had. They did note that his watch was missing, but there were coins in his pocket. So even though the theory of a robbery gone wrong gets thrown around, to me, this, this negates that theory. There was money still in his coat that he was wearing. And these bodies were positioned this way after death. So I say this because not only were they lying side by side so perfectly, but her hand was resting, her her left hand was resting on his right thigh. Some reports said knee, some said leg. It seems to be about like the thigh area. And his right arm was positioned to be like just touching her neck. So like they were positioned to be physically touching one another And then between them were ripped up love letters that were addressed to each of them. So that we knew that these letters were correspondence between these two people. It wasn't entirely shocking to the town to find out about this affair because they had been gossiping about it and everybody kind of knew about it, but this truly confirmed it for them. So, and these love letters weren't anything that I would expect at the time they weren't like graphic but they were definitely more suggestive than I would have suspected like maybe more explicit than than you would expect yeah a little bit more explicit that's a good way of putting it so one of the notes that she wrote or like an excerpt from a note she wrote sweetheart my true heart 
I know there are girls more shape with more shapely bodies, but I am not caring what they have. I have the greatest part of all blessings, a nobleman's deep, true, eternal love. How impatient I am to be with you. I want to look up into your dear face for hours as you touch my body close. And then in the excerpt we have from one of his notes, darling Wonderheart, I just want to crush you for two hours. I want to see you Friday night alone on our road where we can let out unrestrained that universe of joy and happiness we call ours. He signed his letters to her DTL, which in German stands for thy true lover, but she preferred to call him babykins. So this immediately captures the media's attention, not only because this is, you know, just a very scandalous story. The pastors, the married pastor is sleeping with a married woman. His wife, the pastor's wife, was actually a very wealthy, high society woman and her family was related to Johnson and Johnson. Like I said, this captured the media's attention and just the attention of everyone nearby. Um, the farm where the bodies were found turned into a tourist attraction. So not only had the crab apple tree that they were laying under been stripped of everything, including the bark, so the branches, the leaves, everything. They even at one point tried to rip the tree out of the ground to keep the tree. Mm -hmm. But then eventually vendors came because it was such a tourist attraction. Vendors started popping up shops that had like popcorn and peanuts and souvenirs. And one of the souvenirs that they sold were um, like bags full of dirt from the scene for 25 cents. So this leads to an investigation and an initial trial in 1922, the year that it took place. Um, and our main suspects were the reverend's wife, Eleanor, along with her two brothers and her cousin. So she's got a brother named Henry and another one named William. And then her cousin's name is also Henry. Nothing comes of this trial. It takes five days for the hearing. No indictments were made. The problem is, is that there's just like, they have the means and the, and like the motive, but there's just, there's no real evidence to tie them to the murders. And immediately after they're acquitted, um, the wife of the reverend, she sets sail for Europe. She's like, no, I'm out of here. Then we skip forward four years to 1926. So in 1926, a maid of the woman who was killed, Eleanor, she had been talking to her betrothed and she said, you know, like I worked for this woman. I kind of knew what was going on. And at one point they even paid me hush money. And I guess he was like disgusted by this. I don't know that you need to be disgusted by it, but he was enraged by it as well. And so he immediately goes to the police and he tells them what's going on. And so this, this gets out to the tabloids, all this new information, and it sparks another investigation, which results in the second trial. So the second trial takes place in 1926 and it's called the trial of the century, which is a little premature. <laughs> But sure. Um, so hundreds of reporters fill up the courtroom. And over the course of the 23-day trial, more than 12 million words would be printed out this. So amongst some of these reporters were well-known writers. Um, one was Billy Sunday, who actually his writings helped bring about prohibition. There was a novelist and pay playwright, Mary Roberts Reinhardt. 
And then um, newsman Damon Ranyan, he wrote Guys and Dolls. So the trial takes place in Somerset County Courthouse. Two judges presided over it. And it, and like I said, it lasted almost a month. Um, and again, it's, it's just blowing up the newspapers, this woman's wealth, her social status, the the case is just so salacious. There's romance, there's intrigue, there's murder. And a lot of witnesses were called in. One of the sources that I saw said somewhere between like 60 and 80 witnesses, which sounds like a crazy amount for me. But I guess back then, if you didn't have a lot of physical evidence, maybe you needed more witness, more witnesses. So, but like how many people can say the same thing over and over again? Really? I don't see people saying the same testimony. I, yeah, I have no idea. So the prosecution's main witness was named Jane Gibson. And she, she was actually the the owner of the farm where the bodies were found. And she owned a pig farm. The defense did their best to make her out to sound like crazy and uneducated and just ruin her credibility because this is the best witness that the prosecution has. Um, And they eventually start calling her pig woman, which is pretty awful. So her retelling of the events do vary every time she she speaks about them, you know, to the police, to the newspapers at the trial. To be fair, though, this is four years later, right? So the account, you know, recently after is probably going to be a little bit different from what you remember four years later. Not only that. She was very sick by the time the trial began. She was literally on her deathbed from cancer. Like she was rolled in on a hospital bed to give her testimony accompanied by a doctor and two nurses. Like this woman is dying and she's giving this testimony. And then on top of that, her mother is in the courthouse constantly yelling, she's a liar, she's a liar, she's a liar. Like her own mother? Her mother. I have no idea why no one has really spoken about like what happened, but it is confirmed. It was her mother is yelling. She's a liar. She's a liar over and over again during this woman's testimony on her deathbed. So basically Jane's recollection of the night goes like this. She says on the night of the murders, she was at home and she heard noises outside and then her dogs start barking like crazy. So she decides to go out and see what's going on. So when she gets outside, she sees in the distance that there is a man who is on her property. So she hops on her mule to go check it out because she thinks maybe it's a thief or something. She's she's a farmer. She's a pig farmer. So she's got like a field. And she's worried about her crops. So as she begins to ride towards this man, soon it changes from one person to four people. And so she kind of like slows down and because she, she wants to see what's going on before she gets herself involved. Fair enough. So she can make out that it's two men and two women and she hears one shot and the man goes down and she hears a yell, a woman yell, don't, don't, don't. And then three more shots and a woman falls. She says at that point, she rode away. She didn't want to get involved. I can't blame her. Um, and that's all she knows. So again, our three witness or our three main suspects are still the wife of the Reverend and her two brothers, Henry and William. We know that William had the same gun that was used, a 32 caliber pistol, but his was filed off so that he couldn't shoot it because he really wanted the gun, but he had mental problems. So they wanted to keep him safe. 
So the gun literally didn't work. And then her other brother had three witnesses saying that he was off fishing the night of the murder or, you know, around the time of the murder. So it couldn't have been him. There are reports that Frances had been out that night, the wife of the reverend, but she claims that she was out on a, on a search for her husband because he hadn't come home. And she got home around 3 a.m. And the same is said for the husband of the woman who was killed. Supposedly, he had been out that night looking for her too, but neither of them ran into each other. So lots of people have different speculations of what actually happened. But at the end of the day, even though Francis and her brothers had the motives and means, again, there wasn't enough physical evidence. So they were acquitted yet again. And then they immediately turned around and sued one of the tabloids for $3 million. And to this day, this case remains unsolved because no one has actually gone to jail for these murders. So a lot of people believe that it could have been Francis. It could have been her brothers, one of the brothers, maybe because they said two men and two women. My personal theory is that it was the spouses of both of them. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's what I'm taking away. No, I definitely agree. It's like the the way the woman was killed is just too specific for it to not be like a passion, a crime of passion. Like it was very specific. Number one, they knew she was in the choir. So they took out her vocal cords and her tongue. Like that's very specific, I feel like. Yeah, very malicious in a very personal way. And another thing is where did those love letters come from? Did they, Did Eleanor and... And the pastor have the the love letters on them just by chance. I'm thinking that one of the spouses found the love letters and brought it along with them, you know, and this is, I didn't hear any of the sources that I, like, I listened to a couple podcasts. I, I read a couple articles. I watched a YouTuber um, and none of them mentioned this, but I found an actual newspaper clipping from the daily Arkansas Gazette from October 6th of 1922. And they're talking about, you know, the, what was going on with the bodies that there were cuts on the hands and they were found next to each other and all this stuff. So one thing that I did hear from other sources and is in this clip is that the pastor had been squirreling away money, if you will. So initial reports said that, and and this is money at the time he had hidden away like $10,000 but they actually found a safety deposit box. So this article quote says, it was revealed here today that instead of the 10,000 previously reported that Reverend Mr. Hall had securities easily converted into cash worth $40,000 in safe deposit box, end quote. So he was putting away money and there, and then again, in this article, it says, quote, two witnesses are quoted saying Mrs. Mills confided that the rector and she were ready to elope to Japan, quote, as soon as she said the word, end quote. These witnesses are Miss Barnhart, her sister, and another woman, end quote. So we've got people saying that they knew that these this couple was like gonna run away together and the pastor was squirreling away $40,000 in 1922. It's like, it can't be a coincidence. Exactly. And then the thing that I haven't heard anyone else talk about that is also in this clipping is this quote unquote post office that this is how they believe that the the lovers would pass notes. One of them said like maybe they passed them in a hymn, like they would put the note in a hymn, give the person the book, and then you know 
do it back and forth all the time. But this, this little post office was a box that was found in the boiler room of the church, which only had one entrance from the outside. And the only person who had access to this boiler room was the husband of Eleanor, James, the church's janitor. So once again, supports the theory that it it had to be him. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And I can't find anywhere why he wasn't looked into more. The only thing I saw was like, oh, he was just like, he seemed very normal. So they didn't push it, which to me just sounds ridiculous. But I don't know. I guess you you could go on the tangent that, you know, maybe they, they just assumed that it was a jealous wife rather than, oh, it couldn't have been a husband, 1922, you know, but I, I don't know what their reasoning really was for not looking into the husband, but I think maybe they should have a little bit more. It's, I don't know. It could be either way. Like either it was a really, really jealous wife or also a really jealous husband. Like it could go either way. Yeah. And especially with the, with the notes and like only he had access to the janitor closet like that's just unless they were working together that would also make sense or that's another theory i'd buy i think he's involved in some way shape or form right yeah whether it was just him alone or with the wife yeah i agree so that's all i have for today i don't really have a big takeaway for this one i figured we would just kind of jump into the category with a more entertaining and salacious story that doesn't really have any like safety thing you can take away from it just very very entertaining lots of theories we can throw around so yeah we will see you next week with our next episode continuing our category of cold cases and as always if you haven't already don't forget to follow us on social media at instagram facebook at real time crime